0: So we're going to talk about the Genothliokai as we're going through bloodlines and battles. Um, we talked about the House of Omri and the Samaritans and then Athalia last week. Um, my son told me that what I should do is get another picture of the guy with a bowel problem just to start the day, but to see how many we could get to throw up, but I spared you that. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Genothliokai, and a question is, did anybody try to figure out who those guys are? And you, were Anyone able to figure it out? So we'll, we'll look at who these guys are here today. It's kind of a obscure term. I got that term from Bishop Usher in his book, uh, and there's a people group that he, uh, that are called that back in the ancient days. So we're gonna look at the Geneth We're gonna look, number one, at King Hezekiah, a good king. So we've talked about Omri and Ahab, Jezebel, and then Athaliah. Those guys were in the north, up in Samaria. Now we're going to be down in the south, which is where Hezekiah is king in Judah with Jerusalem as the capital. Then we're going to look at the Genethleachai. Then we're going to see a battle and then war in heaven. And so we're going to get into some of this that I think is kind of interesting and fun. So we're going to start up here with King Hezekiah, and you'll see this will follow in your notes um, like we typically do. Uh, Hezekiah was king and reigned 29 years down in the south in Jerusalem. So just kind of a general statement, Ahaz was his father. So here's the timeline, and actually it took a lot of work to figure out the timeline, because you can look at various timelines, and they're all going to be a little bit different, but the timeline of Hezekiah, I think would be a PhD thesis to go try to figure out exactly where all these things fit, because it's quite complicated. So we know that the the standard timeline, so I'm just going to use this one, the standard conservative scholar timeline is 715 BC as King Hezekiah. In 722, you had Assyria. There's various Assyrian kings, but Assyria takes the north, which is Israel, captive. But here's an interesting verse. Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. In his fourth year, and he besieges it for three years. So that tells you he's either king or a co-regent or something, and people always debate how they might do those. But he is in charge when Samaria falls. And that'll pay, uh, that matters when they're talking about, well, how about Samaria? Because in this day, Samaria is actually stronger than Judah. But so he was king, so he couldn't have just started here. He had to be before that. Now, 701 is when most people agree that's when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes in. A different Assyrian king conquered the north here. Then Sennacherib comes here at 701. So we're going to keep that date. But there's other things that make it interesting how to make this timeline. And we're going to go back and forth between Chronicles, Kings, and Isaiah. So if you read those, there's three different books that all tell the story of Hezekiah. And they give little tweaks, little differences, but it's not in chronological order. There's the key phrase now, in those days, when he's healed, and then there's all this stuff that happens in battles. I'm going to put it in chronological order for you. Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 are not in chronological order. The book of Daniel is not always in chronological order. Uh, there's multiple things in Scripture that are not in chronological order. The book of Judges is not in straight chronological order. And so you have to look at timelines and kings and know who people are in order to get the actual flow. But I'm going to bounce around between Chronicles and Kings and Isaiah on the main part of the story because each one tells little bits, but I'm going to do it chronologically for you here today. But you'll notice if you study your Bible the order might seem different, this is going to be chronological. And he, Ahaz, that's the father of Hezekiah, offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. So he is taking idolatry now into Jerusalem, Judah. Therefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hands of the king of Aram. The Aramians defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them up to Damascus. He, Ahaz, was also given in the hands of the king of Israel. That would be Samaria, who inflicted heavy casualties on him. And one day, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors. So who's tougher right now? Samaria in the north or Jerusalem in the south? Samaria in the north is stronger, and that makes a difference. <laughs> Oh, you get now. That was a woman with a catch. That's no, oh, but that was awesome. I mean, we were two for three. I mean, that's pretty good. Your husband, he—you've got him whipped now. So Jerusalem is inferior to Israel, the north. Um, they've already just lost a big battle. That's important. Later on, we'll see because. Who are you when Samaria couldn't stand before Assyria? And there's always a reason. The reason why things go bad is because there's moral problems, there's idolatry going on from leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So Samaria is stronger militarily than Jerusalem at this point, than Judah. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and cut them in pieces, Get rid of the temple, all this stuff, we don't need that. He shuts the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars in every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods, little g-gods, aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. So syncretism following the way of the heathen nations, not following Yahweh. Therefore, so there's always cause and effect with Scripture. There is nothing random anywhere in the universe unless you believe in evolution. But God's word is non-random. Everything has cause and effect. So therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, and he, God, has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. We could probably make a relationship to our country as we reject God and move away into syncretism and idolatry. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. So Hezekiah is looking at all of these problems, and he says, I am going to make a change. So Hezekiah says, Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. That's number one. Hezekiah broke from the way of his father and made a covenant with the Lord. He broke from the way of his father, and made a covenant with the Lord. So there's this revival. Uh, This is down in the south. There never was a good revival up in the north. Jehu did have one a little bit. We talked about him last week. Uh, But this is a good revival down in the south in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the princes on their part contributed a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. A large number of priests consecrated themselves, got holy for God. All the assembly of Judah rejoiced with the priests and Levites and all the assembly that came from Israel. And there's also sojourners who came from north and Israel down into Judah. They're attracting people to God. There was a great joy in Jerusalem for since the day of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had not nothing like this in Jerusalem. So we have a great revival. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people. God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling. Number two, Hezekiah led a revival that brought great joy to Jerusalem. A revival that brought great joy to Jerusalem. So we have this joy I love to read scripture and stop and pause and ask questions because there's no random. Everything has cause and effect. Why are they having so much joy in Jerusalem? Why is that? All you're doing is killing a bunch of animals. You're putting a knife on his throat. You're slitting them and you're, why is this causing joy? Let's go back. To numbers, You can get most of these laws, but Numbers here lays it out really well. This is after the Exodus. And so now the Levites, that's one of the tribes of Israel. The Levites shall lay their hands on the heads. They're talking about two bowls here. Hands on both heads. Offer the one for a sin offering and the other a burnt offering to the Lord, making atonement for the Levites. The Levites have to be sanctified and purified before they can go offer sacrifices for the rest of the people. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are holy. They are separate to God. And the Levites shall be mine, says the Lord God. Then after that, after they've been cleansed, the Levites may then go in to serve in the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering. Why? Why are the Levites, out of all the twelve tribes, why are they separate to God? They're the ones doing... Leading the worship and the sacrifices. You notice they can't do it until they have been sanctified and purified ritually. Here's the reason. For they, the Levites, are wholly given to me. This is a sovereign declaration by God from among the sons of Israel. I, the Lord, have taken them from myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. Well, why is that? It goes back to the Exodus. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified your firstborn for myself. If you painted the blood on the doorstep properly, your human and your animal firstborn was spared. If not, it was killed. They're mine because I didn't kill them. They're legally mine. But I have taken the Levites now instead of the firstborn of all the regular people, the sons of Israel. And the Levites have to be sanctified and then they can lead you in sacrificial worship. It all comes down to this big revival. Number three, understanding substitutionary blood sacrifice brings great joy. The blood sacrifice brings great joy. I've just put a couple of references you can look at But this is a propitiation. So it started back then and we now see it as we look back at the cross with the Messiah, a perfect propitiation, a satisfactory payment that pays the bill in full. So if you lived your life perfect, you could go to heaven. Nobody can because of original sin. But if you did live perfect, you would go to heaven. So let's say this guy here lives perfect. Can he give his life for one of you? No, that's not a propitiation. Why? So you look at David, he has an affair, he has murder to cover the affair, and he cries out, against my wife I sinned. Against who? Against God. You don't sin against your wife, you sin against God. So he knew his sin was against the Almighty God. Any sin is therefore infinite in power because it was against the infinite God. It wasn't your puny wife that you sinned against. It was the big guy. So therefore, if a human lives without sin, he would earn his way to heaven. I realize that's not possible. I'm talking theoretical. If he did, he'd make it himself, but he couldn't make a payment, a propitiation satisfactory to pay the bill for any other person because he is not infinite. Only an infinite God could do that. So as we understand sacrificial blood sacrifice, without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin, that brings, not only it should start with gratitude, but then you realize the joy that we can actually have eternal life and we don't need eternal damnation. That is the foundation of the revival of Hezekiah, all around these sacrificial blood sacrifices. This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. So now we're going to move to the genethleachai. We're kind of walking chronologically in the life of Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah is the king and he gets sick in those days. So if you just read the passage, this is after the battle with Sennacherib, but chronologically it comes before, because that's in those days, so it's, it's not and then, it's all at this kind of general same time. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, came to him and said, thus says the Lord, set your house in order. Uh-oh. Why? For you shall die and not live. Kind of a downer to start your day. This is the way it's going to go for you, buddy. But Hezekiah humbles himself and prays before God. And before Isaiah had even left the premises, before he had gone out to the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and said, Return, go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you'll go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life. And so if you remember these ends, last week we had an end to Jehoram the king. It's gonna be bad for you and you're gonna have the bowel problem. And, oh, I don't want to hear an and when God is giving punishment. But when God says, okay, I've heard, I will heal. I will actually add to your life and I'm more, what's the and? What is the good? Remember, God wants to bless those who serve him. And I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria who hasn't come yet, but he's going to be coming. And another one. And I will defend this city for my own sake my servant David's sake. So obviously the healing came before the invasion, the, the surrounding of Jerusalem by Sennacherib. So here's our timeline. We know that he was king when Assyria fell. Uh, there's a traditional date for King Hezekiah. 701 is when Sennacherib surrounds Jerusalem, but he's dinking around in the country as an invading force for a couple of years. Now Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Isaiah said, this will be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this. He's going to give you a sign to say, yes, I'll heal you. What do you think? Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back? So Hezekiah said, it's easy for the shadow to decline. It's like a sundial going down. That's the way it always does. Let's make this tough. Let's go backwards 10 steps. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord and God brought the shadow on the stairway back. Ten steps by which it had gone on the stairway of Ahaz. That was like a sundial. So the sun, the shadow is moving and it goes backwards just like turning a shadow backwards. That requires movements of what? Heavenly bodies. Uh, And it's interesting as people talk about that, it doesn't disrupt other eclipse data. And so, wow, wow. This is not a simple thing. Who noticed? The <laughs> oh, the Geneth Leokai. We don't even need to know who they are. he will give you another one you can reach. Uh, the Geneth Leokai noticed this. You need to sit in the front and you can learn to catch uh so who noticed it was the Geneth Leokai? You were waiting for that one, weren't you? Uh so she gets this even if we don't know who the Geneth Leukai were, this is the ancient ones, the smart ones. It literally means the keepers of the genealogies. Well, who are the Geneth Leukai? They stem from Babel. They are the guys that are star worship, astronomy. They're not worshiping Yahweh, but they're the class of the smartest people in the world. At that time, Baradak Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon. So remember, right now, Assyria is the power. We're at like 715 time. Babylon will be at 605. They beat Syria, Assyria in 612. At that time, Baradak Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house the silver the gold the spices the precious oil the house of his armor all that was found in his treasuries there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show the Geneth Lehiakai Hezekiah was pleased as he showed them all so He's pleased that these dudes, the ancient ones, the ones that know things, the guys that study the stars, they see signs, they observe things that no one else in the world observes. Here's an example. You have a some kind of miraculous movement in the heavenlies and only one people group on earth noticed, had the wherewithal to notice, and they came to see me. So you see there's a pride issue with Hezekiah. Number four... Hezekiah was pleased that the Genethleachai came to see him. He was pleased. You could also put proud. Do I know he was proud? Yes. Chronicles adds that. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. He prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. Chronicles oftentimes puts the spiritual insight into things. Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit that he received for the healing because his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came on him and Judah and Jerusalem his heart was proud the Geneth lehiakai noticed me they don't notice routine guys however hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the lord did not come on them in the days of hezekiah so the north assyria was taken by the north of Jeru- uh, uh, israel was taken by uh, Assyria, but Assyria does not take the south. That's going to await the days of Babylon a hundred years later. Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor. Why did he have riches and honor? His father Ahaz had been paying tribute to Assyria for years and years and years. Hezekiah stopped that, and that was righteous before God. So God encouraged him, you should not be subordinate, you are supposed to be sovereign. What are you being subordinate for? I, God, am the one that decides who is over you, who is not. So when Babylon comes, God tells him, submit to Babylon. But he never tells them to submit to Assyria, and so Ahaz was wrong to be paying. It really helps you understand how to deal with the government. Is this sanctioned and ordained by God or not? And in the case of Assyria versus Babylon, Assyria was never sanctioned by God. Babylon was. Now it's time to submit, then it wasn't. There's always a bigger picture above what you see. Hezekiah had immense riches because he had ceased paying tribute to Assyria in honor. He made for himself treasuries of silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields. All kinds of valuable articles, storehouses for the produce of grain, wine, oil, pens for cattle, and sheepfolds for the flocks. He made cities for himself, acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. It was Hezekiah who stopped up the outer outlet, and so he's going to be stopping these things in preparation for defense. But here we see more insight. Even in the matter of the envoys of the rulers of Babylon who sent to inquire, they don't care that a guy got healed. They looked at the astronomy. That's what the wonder in the land had, and it was centered in this area of Jerusalem. So these dudes, the Genethleachi show up, and God left him alone to test him to see what was in his heart, and it revealed pride. So the Genethleachi are also called the Chaldeans, and that is the core group of Babylon. And so we're going to look a little bit of the Chaldean. So we go. Daniel is not written until the Babylonian captivity. Now they're in captive to Babylon, in Daniel. There's youths. This is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys, in whom was no defect, who are good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had the ability for serving in the king's court. He takes the cream of the crop. The king ordered them to teach these guys the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The core group of the Chaldeans are the Genethleachai. Daniel was ten times better, as well as his, his buddies. So out of all the Chaldeans, these guys are the best. So a Chaldean doesn't have to be a blood relative. It's like the way of Cain or something like that. But they're being taught the way of the Chaldeans of the Geneth But the Spirit of God is far superior than any of this idolatry. Then the king gave orders to call in, look at the group. The magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. Daniel is part of the Chaldean group. He's not in that bloodline, but he's in part of that group now. To tell the king his dream, so they came and stood before the king. These are the Chaldeans. But notice there's all sorts of dudes that kind of have special stuff. The magicians and conjurers and sorcerers. This goes back to the Tower of Babel. They weren't building a big tower. They were building this in defiance of God. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we're not dispersed. God said to disperse. We're going to say, no, we will not. That is the way of Cain to be in defiance. The Tower of Babel would have been a little over 100 years after the flood. So the Chaldeans are in that core group under Nimrod building the tower. But then God changes the language. Of course, it was not a tall tower. It was a ziggurat. It was all bent on study and worship of the stars. So this is star worship is what this is. Um, That's a curve. Let's just follow the Chaldeans, the concept of Babylon. So remember the... Underlying way of Cain with Lamech pre-flood was destroyed. And you notice we don't even have much in archaeology to find of that ancient people group because God destroyed it. But pretty quick, right after the flood, what do you have? You have Babel and then you have Babylon. You have Nimrod. You have rebellion against God. These Geneth the Chaldeans, are not worshipers of Yahweh. They're worshipers of creation of the stars and they go through and they weave through scripture and it's amazing to watch what they do so they showed up there at the healing with Hezekiah but Babylon as a concept goes clear through the revelation so we're going to look now at the apocalypse you have uh, the seals and then you have the trumpets and then you have the bowls and notice these get worse and worse and worse and staccato staccato, staccato, bang bang boom things are moving faster so you've had the seals, you've had the trumpets, now you've had the bowls we're moving through tribulation now you have oh a Jezebel and a beast. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, see these are the last, you had seals, trumpets, bowls, came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot, pulls people away with idolatry is adultery, pulling away from the worship of God. She is the harlot who stimulates this, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and who dwell on the earth, all those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality." He carried me away in the spirit to the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, pearls, having in her hand a gold cup of the abominations, the unclean things from her immorality. On her name was written mystery, Babylon the Great, the what? The mother of harlotry. So Jezebel and Athalia that we had these last couple of weeks are right in this line, but where does it come from? It started with Babylon. That was the thing after the flood. So the first world was destroyed. Within a little over a hundred years, you have the Tower of Babel. And now this is the mother of harlotries is Babylon is what this, it's a people group, but then it's also symbolic of a way, much like the way of Cain. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, just like Jezebel killing all the prophets, and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So we're not doing a study of revelation. I'm just interweaving how Babylon weaves through with the source of idolatry and harlotry. He cried out with a mighty voice, this big angel, fallen is Babylon. Notice that was 17. Now we're 18, the prediction of fallen Babylon with a mighty stone. We go on later in 18, then a strong angel takes up a stone like a great millstone, throws it in the sea and says, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence, will not be found anymore. Then we go to Revelation 19. It's all chronological. So here in Revelation 19, what happens? Heaven is open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and wages war. So five, the glorious appearing. Notice that the rapture is not the glorious appearing. The rapture, Christ, is up in heaven, and it's not glorious. The glorious return is when he actually lands on the Mount of Olives to set up his kingdom. This is number five, the glorious appearing at the end. Revelation 19 of Christ puts an end to Babylon. So it started at the Tower of Babel and it ends with the landing of Christ. That is Babylon. So let's go back cuz we get a little distracted. That's just weaving through the Chaldeans, the Geneth-Lehikai. is Babylon? It is harlotry against God. These dudes showed up now in the time of Isaiah and Hezekiah. So then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, "What did these guys? Where did they come from?" Just kind of an innocent question. Everyone knows who the Geneth Leakai are. He's just, what, what, what happened, Hezekiah? He's talking about the Geneth Leakai. Why would you ask about these guys? God is testing Hezekiah to see what's in his heart. Hezekiah downplays it. He says, well, uh, these guys, they just came from, Kar, nothing big, they just came from Babylon. over That's a long ways away, a hundred years before Babylon is the world power. So Isaiah says, well, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah said, they've seen all that is in my house, all that nothing that is in my treasures I have not shown them. Who's he talking about? Me, myself, my treasure, my power. He doesn't say what God has rewarded, we met with, he rewarded me with. He is saying what I have done. He's talking about my wealth. You notice he does not bring up God's word. Because why did they show up? They weren't so interested in the fact that he was healed. They saw something in the stars. Had something happened centered here in Jerusalem. And they show up. The Gentilechi don't just show up. But they did. A totally missed opportunity. He points to himself. Instead of pointing... Not to the stars, but the creator of the stars. So a great question to a skeptic is why with Alexander the Great, which would be 200 years after this, why with Alexander the Great was Jerusalem not Hellenized? Alexander Hellenizes everything, but not Jerusalem. That's interesting. The brief answer is because the high priest Jadua welcomed him in. You don't welcome the dude that's going to raise your city. But he did, and he shows him the scroll of Daniel. And Alexander the Great recognized himself as the goat. He didn't come to salvation, grace, and acceptance of Yahweh as his personal God, but he bowed to Jadua, the high priest, and the name on his hat. He has an influence. This was an opportunity for Hezekiah to influence the Jeneth Leachai, but he thought it was about himself. So there's way more to that story. He does not point them to God's word. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. I were just asking you a question to see where your heart was. You revealed where it was. Behold, the days are coming when all is in your house. All that your fathers laid up to the, in store this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So you're going to pay it all to Assyria. And then in the Babylonian captivity, it's going to all get shipped off there. It'll be carried to Babylon. So when is that going to happen? Well, this is going on right about here That's where the Genetliokites show up before Sennacherib's invasion, and that is when it's all going to go to Babylon, but he's going to have to make payment now to Assyria. Ezra, but because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And what was he? Oh, he was a Chaldean. All right, so what else did these guys do? Where else do they show up in Scripture? These guys that study the stars. Oh, interesting. Now this is a fascinating group, and we can't be sure that these are the same Chaldeans. They're probably Persian kings. The Bible never says there's the three. They just said there was three gifts. but these guys noticed what? Something in the heavenlies. I think it's the same Geneth the same Chaldeans that showed up earlier. And what are they doing? They're coming from Persia, which is over here. Who's the king that kills all the kids? Herod. What is Herod's nationality? Oh, man, there's an A student. He was an Edomite. That is from which guy? Remember our bloodlines? That's from Esau. Edom is Esau. So that is not Jacob. He is not Israelite. He is Edomite, Idumean. And so he is a king that Rome puts in there to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, where Jesus is born about five miles south of of Jerusalem. So the Persian kings come over and at that time there was rumor that because Persia was never taken over by Rome. There was thought uh, that maybe they might invade so that's going to create unrest and an Idumean or Edomite king who is not Israeli is not going to like a Messiah who's Israel. Number six, Herod the Great was an Edomite who would not support a Jewish Messiah. That would cost him his throne and his power gives you a little more insight into the Magi. And when you study the name Magi, that goes back to the old dudes, back to Babylon as well. There was actually a people group called the Magi. So I believe it's all part and the same with the Geneth Leakai. And of course, it's interesting, they worshiped Jesus, but were never told if they came to salvation with him or not. I don't know. But they did come and worship this guy, and they would have known the scrolls of Daniel and that the 69th week was getting ready to come to a close. They were well-versed in all the literature. So now let's get to a battle, because we love to talk about battles. After all that, Hezekiah had so faithfully done. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself, So here's the Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. They're coming back down in this direction. His eyes are probably on Egypt. He's already taken Israel in 722. Now his final surrounding of Jerusalem is 701. But he's dinking around in here for a couple of years. There's Judah. Well, what about the Egyptians? God had already told them through Isaiah, Behold, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. That will be Esarhaddon, the son of Sennacherib. A mighty king will rule over them. So their fate is already sealed. They're going to be gone. But that's what he's doing is stabilizing the Levant area there to then go into Egypt. That's what Sennacherib has his eyes on. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So he hasn't taken Jerusalem yet, but he's taken all the good stuff, all the fortified cities. You can't allow a fortified city in your backfield because that's called a sally. They can come out from there and attack your flank and rush back to the city. You have to have it sequentially in order if you're going to go take the big city. So this is where he's king and this is where a lot of people get the 14th year because we know Sennacherib came here, but Sennacherib, that was his final surrounding of Jerusalem not just when he first entered the land. So Hezekiah's time frame just goes a little bigger than that. So now we see he's coming down from here. He's already got Assyria in the north. That was Samaria. Now his eyes are on Judah, but his big prize is he actually wants Egypt. There's more wealth there in Egypt. So here we see what he's doing. He's coming down, coming through. He takes several cities. Samaria's in the north. He takes several cities, but now he's at Lachish when... Hezekiah sends him bribe money. Oh, I can see what you're doing. You're surrounding me out. You're cutting off my backfield and supply. And the next spot is going to be Jerusalem. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, saying, you notice he waits. uh Uh-oh, he is really serious coming in here. I have done wrong. My father's paid you tribute. I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver. It's debated what that is, but a talent may be about 75 pounds of silver and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord, from the doorposts which he had overlaid. So he had made all this gold stuff, overlaid it with gold, but man, i got to give all this stuff to Assyria now to make up for the tribute payment I haven't done. So he strips all that stuff off and pays it. But the payment doesn't work. That's why you don't pay off a bully. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war on Jerusalem, why? Because he doesn't release his siege on Lacius. And there's time down south there where Sennacherib is dinking around. A guy from Cush comes up. So he has distractions. And this process takes probably about three years. That's what uh, Usher says in his book. He consulted with his officials and military staff. What do we do? Let's block off the water from the springs outside the city. And they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked the springs and the stream that flowed to the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come lay siege to us and find plenty of water up there? Plug it up so they starve out there. He worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall. That can't happen fast. There's a couple year period here. All the towers on the wall. He built another wall outside the wall and reinforced the terraces in the city of David. Made the large number of shields and weapons. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square of the city. And encouraged them with these words, don't be, or be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged because of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and the vast army with him, there's a greater power with us. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. Kind of reminiscent of King David. The people gained confidence from Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said, because everything rises and falls on leadership. Then the king of Assyria sent his dudes, but Rabshakeh is his main guy from Lachish, So they're down sieging this. And you can go today. There's still siege ramps up to the, uh, archaeologically at that place. King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And they called to the king and the king's dudes, You know, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. The king's dudes came out to the Assyrians. So they're having their, you know, their peeing match out there. They're talking back and forth. The dude's up on the wall and the guy's down and they're talking back and forth. So Rabshakeh, the Assyrian, says, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Your king is not the great king, our king is. What is this confidence that you have, Hezekiah? Have I not come up with the Lord's approval? He lies and says he has the approval of the Lord. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, his guys, said... Well, don't speak to us or speak to us in Aramaic, the diplomatic language of the day that us educated elites know, but the regular people don't. Speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand that. But don't speak to us in Judea, and that's Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I'm not going to listen to you. But Rabshakeh said, "Has my master sent me only to you and the upper crust guys? No." I am here talking to the men on the wall doomed to eat their own dung and drink their urine with you. I will speak in Hebrew. Number seven, mindset and confidence are critical to winning any battle. The Assyrians are dramatically undermining the confidence of the Jews. So they're on the wall thinking about, are we going to be eating our own dung and drinking our own urine? And they have a pretty good army out there. They definitely got more than we do. We're in trouble. So Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Hebrew and Judean, saying, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Have any of the gods, little g, of the nations, delivered his land from the hand of Assyria? Have the Samaritans, they worship the same guy you do, and they just fell. How about all the gods of these countries? Have they been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord possibly deliver Jerusalem, who is inferior to Samaria? That's why that's important to know that in his father's day, they lost 120,000 dudes to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were way better, yet the Samaritans fell. Yahweh. Was Yahweh the god? of Samaria. No. Now that we understand the Samaritans from the last couple of weeks we realize this Rabshaka thinks he understands the nuances of this area but he doesn't. That was not briefly they had Jehu but then they went right back into pagan idolatry. So now we have our timeline and you have uh the Sennacherib surrounding Jerusalem now after Lachish. So uh, uh the north Samaria was already taken. But they were silent, the people on the wall, the Jews, and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not talk to him. Don't answer him. So his guys tore their clothes when they heard this. And they come to tell Hezekiah. And when the king Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. So now he's got remorse and humility. And he enters the house of the Lord with sackcloth. He's not proud anymore. He humbles himself before God. And he sent, so he humbles himself, goes to the temple, he sends his guys to Isaiah. We need to see what the prophet of God says, because we're in trouble. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, O oh Lord, God of Israel, who's enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms on earth, you are the creator. You are not ruled by the stars, you're not governed by them, you create and govern everything. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach, not us, but the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all these nations, all their lands. They've cast down their little g-gods and the idols, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Yes, I know they have destroyed them all. O Lord, pray, deliver us from his hand. Why? Why? Why is Hezekiah having confidence now to pray, Lord, deliver us from his hand? And he goes on, so that, deliver us so that, not that I can live or have anything like that, but so that kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God, just like David killing Goliath. Let these Philistines know that there is a God in Israel that is supreme over all. That is the focus of his prayer so that they may know. Number eight, Hezekiah's prayer focused on evangelism rather than his own safety. Remember what his focus was when the Geneth Leakai came? (laughs) The smart guy, the guys that know stuff, came to see me. No, they came because the stars and the sun was funny. There was something going on, and it was a door God was opening to evangelism. And you thought it was about you, you puny Hezekiah. But now he has changed his tune, and he is praying that those heathens can see there is a big G God. However, Hezekiah humbled himself, the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's why they weren't taken. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Oh, like David. Yeah, we can screw up, but do we put ourselves in proper position before God? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp like he did at Lashas. You can go today and see the siege ramp where he took that. That's not going to happen here at Jerusalem today. By the way he came, he will return. He shall not come to this city, says the Lord. I, personal pronoun, will defend this city to save it for my sake and my servant David. It's because you have prayed, this is the word that God the Almighty is now going to speak against Sennacherib. Okay, Sennacherib, says God, because you're raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips I will turn you back by the way which you came. Because he prayed. We have prayer coming up here in a couple weeks, don't we? I wonder where the real battlefield is. Is it up on the wall with a bow and arrow, or is it on your knees in prayer? Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose up early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. And so you might be superficial and say, well, when the men rose up early, how are all of them dead when some of them rose up? All the ones that were dead were dead. So the question is, who died? It was selective. And you read some people, and they try to say, oh, it was a plague that came from rats or some disease. That kind of garbage is never selective. Who died? Well, there's 185,000 who died. But the angel of the Lord is very selective. The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. Number nine, the angel of the Lord selectively killed the best of Sennacherib's invading force. Everything rises and falls in leadership. So the king is left. Multiple guys are left, but it's the schmucks. It's the JV. They don't have a varsity team. Gun, get... how do you get your commanders to lead the men? Look at this. Every mighty warrior, every commander, and every officer, all of the leadership and of the footmen, the brave, the good ones, are gone. You got your schmucks. He doesn't even try to approach the city. He's like, well, this, this is a fool's errand. That's 185,000 dead bodies. Tuck your tail, head back. So he returned in shame, the proud king of Assyria, to his own land. And when he entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. Prayer for evangelism, for other people to see, not for what I can get. So now we'll close with this war in heaven. We kind of talked about a little of that earlier, but it's fa- we talked a little about this a week or two ago, but it's fascinating to me to to go through it. We can't spend much time on it, but it's very interesting because there's war in heaven. Revelation 12, the middle of the book. This is the middle of the tribulation. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they, Satan's guys, were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Well, who was that exactly? It's the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, no mistake who it is, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. Revelation twelve nine. that is the midpoint of the, of the tribulation, and that happens to be the middle verse in the whole book of, of Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brother, Has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God night and day. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens! So the fall of Satan happens in multiple stages. He still has access after his original fall. He still does now, but now he's reduced to heaven. Later, he'll go to the abyss. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He's not doesn't have access to heaven anymore. Knowing that he only has a short time, that brings in the intense what's called the Great Tribulation, the second half of the Tribulation, because Satan can't go anywhere now but restricted to the earth. Number ten, what happens in the heavenlies dictates what happens on earth. It doesn't influence it, it dictates it. What happens up there, just like Aaron and Moses and her, arms are up, arms are down. What happens up here dictates what happens down there. That reminds me of Athalia, Jezebel, this wickedness of following Satan, the great wrath that comes. I am going to kill everything I can. But here's the question: there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the devil, against Satan. Here is God speaking. Lucifer is not in the Bible, by the way. That's in the Latin. His Hebrew name is Hillel, the bright one, the light one, the high one. He is different. He's unique among all creation. Here's what God is speaking about Hillel before his fall. Thus saith the Lord God. So here's truth about who we now know as Satan, but when he was Hillel, Lucifer Thou, individual person, Lucifer, you seal up the sum. There's a measuring cup, it's called finite, but out of all things created, it is you. It is not Michael, it is not Daniel, it is not Gabriel. It is you who seals what's full. Everyone else could be a fraction of you, but they're subordinate to you. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You are the anointed cherub. That word is only here. That's not the same way that kings are anointed. It's a different word, only used here in the whole Scripture. You are special. You are different. You are the big dog. The anointed cherub. That is a significant statement by the Almighty God. Notice the Almighty God is a trinity who is uncreated, infinite this is a finite being but of all finite beings he is the big dog which is why he fell he wouldn't fall if there's a bigger dude than you so how does michael beat him because we think an angel might be tougher was it michael oh right the very next verse they overcame them because of what the blood of the lamb it's that guy He is the sovereign one. And because of the word of their testimony, they didn't love their life even when faced with death. And he goes on talking about the martyrs and the tribulation in chapter 13 and chapter 15 who are before God. But this is the power. It is not the bicep of Michael or the staff or the rod of Odin or something like that. It is the blood of the lamb. Number 11, victory in any battle is ultimately due to the blood of the lamb. That's why Jesus says, I am the Alpha. It's not Michael, it's not Gabriel, and it's not Hillel, it's not Yusuf, Lucifer. I am, I self exist, eternally self exist, no point of, point of origin, never created. I am infinite. I am the Alpha. Yes, I have created beings. Yes, there's a hierarchy. Yes, Satan is the highest of them, but I am the Alpha. He's the want to be. He belongs to the way of Cain. Look at the way of Cain. It's a rejection of authority. Woe to them, they've gone the way of Cain. Now I'm going to insert in here, because we've looked at this one several times in this class, but right here, there's Michael. Michael, the archangel, when he disputed, what's the context? The way of Cain and authority. Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. Where you, God buried Moses and that body is an important body. What are we going to do with that? Michael did not dare. Pronounce against Satan a railing judgment. He submits to God. Michael does not say, let's go duke it out. Let's step outside. Let's do an arm wrestling match. You want to fight on the ground or fight standing up? There is no challenge to a fight by Michael. He knows he is inferior to Satan. He simply submits to God. God sent me with authority to get the book, the body of Moses. I know I can't do combat with you. That I have authority from God. That's where it comes from. Michael cannot have a physical combat and win without the Alpha. So now we see other angels and people get confused with this. Because there's an angel that comes down from heaven holding a key to the abyss and the great chain. He is holding the key. Who has the keys to death and Hades? Jesus the Alpha holds that. He gives that key, that authority, to an angel. This angel has no power over Satan unless it is given to him by the Alpha. So he takes him, he puts him in the abyss. That's not the lake of fire yet. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so he would not deceive the nations any longer. Notice you get out of the abyss, you can't get out of the lake of fire. But it's not the angel himself It is the key. It is the authority. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. The abyss is a compartment of Hades. You have no power over Him. Unless it is granted to you from above. So here you have Apollyon or Abaddon. This is in the tribulation as well. The fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key to the bottomless pit. There's the key was given to him. He doesn't have it of his own potency. It is given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up in the pit like a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Out of the smoke came locusts of the earth and power was given to them. They don't have it unless it's given to them. As scorpions have power, they were told they're not autonomous beings. They're told know what to do and what not to do. Don't hurt the grass or any green thing or a tree, but only, there's two marks, the mark of the beast and the seal of God. Now these guys are not able to touch those who have the seal of God. Only those are the mark of the beast. They were not permitted to kill, not permitted. They're not autonomous. But to torment for five months... Number 12, the ability of any being to do anything comes from the authority of God. God is sovereign. In those days, men will seek death. They will try to commit suicide, and you can't even commit suicide. That is despair. So we looked at the Genothliokai, kind of tried to weave these guys through. Uh, we see them show up with Hezekiah, but they started with Babylon. So in summary, we looked at Hezekiah, who made a covenant with God, rejecting the way of Ahaz, rejecting payment to Assyria, which was proper to do because they were never supposed to be submitted to Assyria. And he makes a great revival on the substitutionary blood atonement. Understanding that concept and that brought joy to the people. And then we saw the Genetliokai. These dudes who know stuff. They see things that everyone else misses. They show up, not because of the healing, but because the astronomical changes. And there's an opportunity. Makes me wonder how many times do we miss an opportunity that God brings our way. Because we think, well, that's pretty cool. And we forget what God is actually doing. Then there's a battle. The angel of the Lord... Selectively kills the best 185,000 in the army of Sennacherib. And then looking at war in heaven is just to see the authority of God. Even Michael can't lay a hand on Satan by himself. If he could, why do we need the Alpha? Very simple logic. If Michael could beat Satan, there's no need for the Alpha. You see what Jesus is doing? everything pertains to the Alpha and the Omega. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Uh, Thank you for this beautiful day. And I just thank you that your word is internally consistent and true and help us to realize it's all about you and not us. Help us to be the servants that you would ask us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.